Our first reading tonight comes from Proverbs, uh, chapter 3, verses 21 to 35, can be found on page 511 of the Pew Bibles. My child, do not let these escape from your sight. Keep sound wisdom and prudence, for they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you sit down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden panic, or of the storm that strikes the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence, and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbour, go. And come again, tomorrow I will give it, when you have it with you. Do not plan harm against your neighbour who lives trustingly beside you. Do not quarrel with anyone without cause, when no harm has been done to you. Do not envy the violent, and do not choose any of their ways. For the perverse are an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked and he blesses the abode of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he shows favour. The wise will inherit honour, but stubborn fools disgrace. Tonight's second reading is from Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 32, and that can be found on page 847 of the Pew Bible. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, This very night your life is being demanded on you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither the storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And and can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass on the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying, for it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 11 of Jesus' 39 parables talk about it. Nearly a quarter of all the things that Jesus ever said concerned it. And more than anything else, Jesus knew it stood as the great alternative centre of a person's life rather than the living and true God. What am I talking about? I'm talking about money and wealth, of course. More than sex, more than heaven and hell, more than injustice, more than family values, Jesus spoke about money. Presumably he had his reasons then, uh, although I'd suggest that if anything he would have even more reason now in one of the richest parts of the world, in the richest era of the history of the world. And so this evening as we continue in this summer series, uh, better than looking at parables from Luke's gospel, uh, we come to the issue of money and wealth and the striving that so often lies behind it. Of the four gospels, it's Luke, which is the one that brings this concern, although that's far too weak a way of describing it. It's this razor focus of Jesus right to the forefront of our attention. And in particular, the parable of the rich fool, uh, which Craig read for us, which uh, delights us and amuses us right up until the time until we realise that it has an incredibly pointy sting in the tail that's directed fair and square at us. And through this parable, we learn um, three things. You see them there. Um, everyone's life consists in something, Jesus says. Secondly, how that thing can make a fool out of you And so then third, how not to be a fool. Everyone's life consists in something. That's how we see things. How that thing can make a fool of you. And then thirdly, how not to be a fool. So point number one, everyone's life consists in something. Uh, Jesus is moved to tell a parable because of an incident that happened to him. It's a request from someone, a brother, in fact, who has suffered the very sad death of his parents. Although, interestingly enough, that doesn't seem to be his primary concern. You don't get a long kind of expression of you know, sadness by this young man on the part of his parents, do you? You don't see the parents there featuring at all, rather. And, oh my goodness, is this not often the case when it comes to inheritance? The only thing he's worried about is getting his fair share of the loot. In all likelihood, he's a younger brother because older brothers, eldest brothers, received a double portion of the inheritance and were what we would call executors of the estate. They were the ones who were responsible for doling out what came down from the parents. And apparently, it looks like this older brother, uh, or the older brother, is ripping off this and possibly even other younger siblings as well. And I've had a little bit to do with uh, inheritance matters at various times in uh, my work, and it's sadly an all-too-common scenario 
families get into fights about inheritance. This is a, this is a beautifully predictable scenario. The first surprise is that Jesus declines to get involved. It's such an interesting thing, isn't it? Someone comes up to says, uh, and says to Jesus, hey, hey, Jesus, will you divide the inheritance for me? He says, no. No. This is a matter of pretty significant justice. He was one person being significantly wronged by another person. This is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is supposed to care about, right? Instead, he says, literally, who set me as a judge or divider over you? What's really interesting is that actually just later on in this very chapter, Jesus says that dividing is exactly what he's come to do. But he will not talk to this guy about money until he's talked to him some, about something much more important, which is his heart. He can't handle the money issue until his heart issue has been dealt with, which is why Jesus gives him a warning in verse 15. He said, take care. Sorry, I should read. He said to them, take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, we'll come back in a moment to the intensity of this warning. But for now, notice the two things that Jesus assumes here. Firstly, um, you see, he, he's, he's talking to the guy, but actually he broadens out who he's speaking to. He, he says, um, to them, that is to everyone around who's uh, in the immediate vicinity and actually therefore also to us. And what he says is that everyone sees their life as consisting in something. Every one of us bases our existence on something or other. The, 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 literally, the word simply means has the existence of his or her life. We sink our hearts into some thing without which we cannot live. If we have that thing, then all is well. Life is on an even keel. You sleep at night. You can look yourself straight in the mirror. If you don't have that thing, you're a mess. You race around trying to make things work. You get frantic. Or you fret and worry and wonder whether things will ever work out. Which is why in the very next paragraph, Jesus goes on to speak directly of the issue of worry. What Jesus is saying very clearly, every one of us sees our lives as consisting in something. We have our existence, the existence of our lives in something. Which leads to the second thing that Jesus assumes, namely, it's entirely possible that the abundance of your possessions is where you find your existence, your meaning, your consisting. After all, that's what has gotten this man's goat, isn't it? He is sufficiently exercised by the injustice perpetrated on him that he's trying to get Jesus to go into bat for him. Right now, nothing else matters uh, to him, possibly not even the death and burial of his parents. He, he doesn't care about that stuff. Which is why what Jesus says to him is that not your life, not anyone's life, consists in the abundance of one's possessions. 
What is it for you? What is it? For you? My my guess. Uh, many of you are just at the sort of the beginning of that whole kind of, you know, career path, whatever the way you want to describe that. You, you know, you you don't have a lot of possessions perhaps yet. Oh, but you can see it ahead of you, can't you? You work hard, you put in, you climb. As long as you're on that track, this danger is real for you. I'll give you two tests um, for how you can find out what it is that you see your life consisting in. The first one is when the, the thing that you've sunk your heart into is under threat. When it's under threat. There are all sorts of things that you don't really, you don't really mind, you don't care about. But if, if, if success in your chosen field, if the respect of your peers is the thing that really holds your head high, and suddenly someone threatens that, criticises you, slags you off behind, then you find that thing that your life consists in under threat and you will rise. Your anger will be kindled. You'll say and do things that you would never believe capable of yourself because your very life is at stake. That, that's the first test, when it's under threat. The second test is if you, when you get criticised. When someone um, that matters to you, that's important to you, is not just a stranger, but that, that counts, and when they don't say something that's just shallow or trivial, but really have a go at you, that, that sort of threatens you to the core, um, what you'll do in your, in your mind is that you'll reach for something. No, no, I'm, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm not the kind of person that you're saying I am. I'm, I'm better than that because... That because... Because I smashed my university exams. Because I'm on a career path that very few people can match. Because I've got a great set of friends and I'm right at the centre of it and they all look to me. Whatever your because is that you reach for when you're feeling threatened, that's what you see your life consists in. And Jesus tells a parable to show how this spiritual reality works out in practice when what your life consists in is the abundance of possessions. The land of a rich man produced abundantly and he thought to himself, what should I do for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, um, just pause here. This is normal, by the way. Some people used to say that talking to yourself was the first sign of madness. That's not true. You talk to yourself as well. I don't know whether you do it quite as sort of deliberately as this. Soul, how are things going there for you? What do you reckon? What are we going to do here? Uh, that's okay. You, you might not do it quite as sort of upfront like this, but you sure do it. We're all talking, it's, you know, self-talk. We're all doing it all the time. And in fact, it wouldn't be such a bad thing if you did start addressing yourself as soul. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Here is a success story if ever there was one. 
This uh, landowner has had a bumper year, although you get the impression that it's not just a bumper year, it's a, it's a, it's a succession of bumper years. This is, this is kind of the magic of compound interest at high rates. I don't know if you know about the magic of compound interest yet, but it's 25% on top of 25% on top of 20. This is going north like your superannuation. You'll find out about that when you get a job. Your superannuation is never going to do. His barns are overflowing. The harvest just keeps piling up outside. And so he asks himself a question. And what's so lovely about hearing his kind of internal dialogue is that we get an insight into the deepest thoughts of his heart. That's the whole idea. That place where we're always talking to ourselves. And the question he asks is, what should I do? What should I do? Because I simply have too much harvest to store. Now, of course, there are all sorts of different answers that he could give to this question. There, there's a, a vast array of options before him, in fact, about what he might do. Which one he chooses shines a spotlight right into his heart. And his answer is profoundly revealing. He will pull down his barns and build bigger ones. Large enough to store everything. And, and notice the key word in his little speech to himself as he addresses himself, soul. Did you, did you, did you pick the key word? Often this is the way biblical literature works, is that it has, uses repetition especially, because it was an, an audio culture, not a, not a red culture. It uses repetition to make the point. What was the key word? The key word was my. My barns. My grain my goods, and ultimately, my soul. And with all this mindness operating in his life, it makes perfect sense to decide the way he decides, to relax, to live life to the full, to eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the, the thing I want you to notice is the relationship between the incident with the man and the warning that Jesus gives him, the brother, and the parable that Jesus tells. Because, because what we're supposed to do is see what's happening in uh, the heart of the rich fool as it reflects the heart of the young brother. Because here's a man who finally feels secure. Do you see that? that, that this, this rich Man no longer worries about anything. He can put his feet up and relax. He feels secure. Why does he feel secure? Because of the abundance of his possessions. That, that's what makes him feel secure. That's what wealth does for him. His life has come to consist in it. His peace and joy and satisfaction and poise in life is a product of it. Now that he has an abundance, he feels good. He feels secure. But, I mean, think about it for a moment, right? He's not secure at all. He's not secure at all. His wealth hasn't protected him against any of the things that really disrupt and unhinge us. His wealth doesn't protect him against poor health. His wealth doesn't protect him against fractured relationships. In fact, 
it's quite often the case that wealth makes your relationships more fractured rather than less. And his wealth sure doesn't protect him against that which stalks all of us and gets all of us in the end, namely death. He is precisely zero degrees more secure against any of those things than before his bumper crop. Do you see? But he's sunk his life into it. That's what it is to see your life as consisting in something. It's when you have it, it's good. It's what you see is this thing in the tale of this parable. You see, the man thought he was an owner, right? My barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. But it turns out he's not an owner at all. None of us are owners. He's owned. And so verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? His life... Uh, literally his soul, it's exactly the same word that he used when he was speaking to himself, soul. His life will be demanded of him because what is true for him is true for all of us. Our souls belong to God. We're not owners of, of any of it. We're only ever stewards. Now I think the thing that's really interesting about this is that Jesus doesn't have the parable lash out at the rich man with God sort of shouting at him in a condemnatory way, you wicked person, you evildoer, you miserable sinner. What does God say to him? You idiot. You fool. His money has made a fool of him. That's Jesus' point. His money has blinded and deceived him into thinking that his life could possibly consist in something as ultimately trivial as the abundance of possessions. And he sunk his heart into it. And so when he has it, he feels a deep security and peace that is no more secure than a spider's web trying to hold up a falling stone. pathetic isn't it it's pathetic we start by being jealous of him right bumper crops bigger and bigger barns multiple superannuation funds but ultimately we just pity him who would be so foolish as this to think that your life consists in the abundance of possessions Well, how can you not be a fool? Because that's the point that Jesus is really looking to make. And he makes it in verse 21. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. There's only one way, as far as Jesus is concerned, not to be a fool. And that's to have a soul that is rich towards God. What does that mean? Well, there's, there's a, a beautiful thread that runs right through the Bible. Um, it's one of the ways in which God describes how he regards his people, 
how he regards those who belong to him. He calls them his treasured possession. Or sometimes actually just his treasure. His treasure. So just pause on that for a moment. He is the God of the universe who owns by right the stars and the galaxies and every ocean and every forest, every diamond and every creature. And he calls you his treasure. His treasured possession. And, and you see that, that's not words, that's not just theory, that's action because he gave up his own son and that son gave up his own life to redeem you, to buy you back, to forgive your sins. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it elsewhere, Jesus Christ, who is rich beyond all measure, made himself utterly poor, literally, literally poor. He had no home, he had no belongings, he had no possessions, he had no goods. And then the greatest of all poverty, he lost even his father on that cross. And he did it all for you and for me. Because that's how much he decided we were worth. That's how much you're treasured. And the point is when you get that, when that sinks into your heart, when you marinate in that, when you know that you are loved and valued and treasured like that, that by his poverty, you have become rich. Then, then something incredibly powerful happens. Your heart is filled. You experience the reality that your life does not consist in something else, anything else, even, even, even a good thing, even the good blessings of this world, like career success, like good relationships, like a terrific family, like great friends, like an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in those things. It does consist in something, yes, in this, that you're God's treasured possession. And that changes you radically from the inside out. It means that you sit loose to everything else because it's not your life. It means that you have the capacity to become radically generous with all your resources and capacity, your time and your energy, and particularly in this context with your money. You know that money and wealth bring you precisely zero security. But you don't need them to bring security because you are already the most secure, the most poised, the most confident that a person can be because you are the treasured possession of the living and true God. And it means then that you use your money as a sacred stewardship. Not mine. It's just entrusted to you to do the most good you can in this world. And so you will give away bucket loads of it. Bucket loads. One more thing. Um, I don't think it's at all accidental that the very next thing that Jesus promises is freedom from anxiety and worry because that's what will happen when your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. You will worry and be anxious and fret. Especially about the basic necessities of life. Look at what he says in verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about your body, what you'll wear. 
For most of us here, I suspect that it's been a really long time since uh, you worried about what and whether you ate or whether you had clothes. Actually, our worries are to do with these things, but at the other end of the spectrum, uh, how much you eat and exactly uh, what the scales tell you about that and whether you wear and whether it suits you and whether it matches your colours and all that kind of stuff. Don't misunderstand, though, it's just a plane ride away to find people, even now and especially in Jesus' time, for whom what you ate and what you wore were the real worries of life. And Jesus says, you don't need to worry. You can be released and freed from these worries for precisely the same reasons that he lays out in the parable. Because verse 23, life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Your life consists in the fact that the living and true God who makes and sustains the ravens and the lilies has you as his treasured possession and so it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus says. You have everything. What do you need to worry about the stuff for? He's given you the kingdom, says Jesus. And that will free you from stinginess. Jesus says, give alms. Um, that is charity, actually. Uh, and then beautifully, he's got, he says, make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. Isn't that just a, a gloriously evocative phrase? Um, I just noticed the other day, actually, um, the stitching in my wallet is coming undone. And, and it's, it's, oh, it's running out. I'll, I, I, it's a bit sentimental value, so I might get it restitched. You know, maybe I'll get a new... Jesus says, get a purse that will never wear out. It will always hold what you need. Superannuation contributions that will register into all eternity. Deposits in the kingdom of God. Because when you've settled it in your heart that your life consists in the fact that you belong to the Father as his treasured possession, then you will be gloriously, even scandalously free from the striving and the worry that animates so much of the society around us. All right, let's, uh, let's draw it together. Um, do you notice that Jesus... Uh, says about the terrible possibility that you may find your life consists in the abundance of your possessions, that that's how you see things. He says about that, he says, watch out! Be on your guard! Uh, I, don't, I can't think of any other sin that Jesus speaks of in this way. And I want to suggest to you there's a reason for that. It makes sense. And, and the reason is this. You don't need to say, watch out, be on your guard against the sin of murder. Okay, pretty much, if you're murdering someone, you know that you're doing that. Okay, it's not, it's not a surprise to you. You don't need to tell someone, watch out, be on your guard against the sin of adultery. It, it might surprise you. You find, oh my goodness, I'm committing adultery. I didn't realise. There I am. But with greed, with overstating the place of money and wealth and possessions in your life, there is something inherently 
deceptive in the sin itself. Not recognising that you have the spiritual sickness of money centrism is part of the foolish sin of money centrism. Um, well, let me put it like this. Um, almost no one thinks that they're greedy. Right? Almost no one thinks that they're greedy because that's part of having the spiritual condition of greed. So there's, there's all the greedy people, they don't think they're greedy, and then there's the non-greedy people and they don't think they're greedy. So guess how many people think that they're not greedy? Pretty much everyone thinks that they're not greedy. Hardly anyone, oh yes, yes, I'm a very greedy person. Um, I read a study a little while ago uh, that reported that only 30% of the people who earn more than $100,000 a year think that they have enough for the necessities of life. Okay, 30, only 30% of the people who earn more than 100K a year think that they have enough for the bare necessities of life. In other words, more than two-thirds of the people who earn higher than average salaries in the richest portion of the population that the world has ever known, right? We're talking 99.9% .9 of the population is less wealthy than them, and they still don't think that they've got enough for the bare necessities of life. And if we've been listening to Jesus, that comes as no surprise to us at all, does it? They've not taken care. They've not watched out. They've not been on their guard. They've sunk their hearts into their wealth. And part of that is that they don't even know it. It's tragic. They're fools. And maybe even we are too. Well, another way to put that is to say, if your primary reaction to Jesus' warning here is to say, ah, oh, you know what? This one, it's not me. This one, I'm okay with. This one, I've got under control. Then that's pretty good evidence that this is precisely about you. You'll know where your heart is with a high degree of accuracy, pretty much according to how much of your resources you give to others. So we're in the summer season, right? The summer series, that's, that's what's happening. And it's the start of a new year. And I want you to do a little bit of reflection. Um, uh, take an objective look at your decisions and actions with regard to money and wealth and possessions throughout 2018. Okay, so you don't need an accounting degree to do this. I have an accounting degree. I can help you with it if you want, but you don't need an accounting degree. All you need is a bit of arithmetic, like eight-year-olds can do this. Okay, so this is not complex. I'm just gonna give you accounting 101. It's, it's on the one hand, on the left-hand side, it's actually the right-hand side, but don't worry about that. On the left-hand side, just put down your income, okay? You just write it down, your weekly or monthly or whatever, times, you know, just write that down. On the other side, uh, in the other column, you write down the only three things that you can do with what you earn. You realise this, there's only three things you do with it. It's not rocket science. It's not overly complicated. There's only three. It's not two, it's not four, and five is right out. It's three. You can spend it, you can give it, or you can save it. That's it. That's all the options you've got. And so you add up the totals and the subtotals. This would be a really great exercise for you to do. And step back and have a look. And then ask yourself a question. You say, soul? 
What do my columns tell me about myself? What is here for me to learn? What story do these two columns tell? At one level, they're just bare facts, but of course, at another level, they give you a profoundly important window into your own heart. That simple exercise will tell you how well you have watched out. That simple exercise will tell you to what degree in all the day-to-day detail of life you have been on your guard. That simple exercise will indicate to you with enormous accuracy how all the small decisions and responses that you have made over the course of last year about this question of money and wealth have lined up so that you can know what you think your life actually consists in the abundance of. In the abundance of your stuff, uh, or possibly more recognisable in our context of our experiences that we've managed to purchase, or an abundance towards God. Unfailing treasure in heaven. And then you need to ask yourself a second question, not just about the past, but about the future. Soul? Soul, what is it that needs to change so that when I do this exercise in a year's time, at the start of 2020, we have another summer series, they'll be on parables from Matthew's Gospel, or whatever it is. You write down your columns, and it's different. You see much more clearly and sharply a heart overflowing with the fullness of God. So that if other people got to see your columns, your income and what you did with it, they might actually be a little bit shocked, a bit scandalised perhaps, because you've been so prodigal, so prodigious, so irresponsible. It was almost as if you really did think that your father had given you the kingdom. And so that's pretty much how you were going to run your affairs too. Jesus says to you tonight, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't allow money to make a fool out of you. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Because a person's life really does not, it really does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Amen.